You're listening to a podcast from BJSM. I'm with John Dresner, and it's great to talk to John because he's such an expert on cardiac issues, and he's given this a lot of thought, and he's taken great care of athletes in preventing cardiac problems over the years. So, John, welcome to this your second BJSM podcast. Yeah, thanks, Karen. Happy to be here. Yeah, we take this issue very seriously, obviously. Um, our thoughts begin with the families of people who have been affected by sudden cardiac death, and uh, there's been a lot in the news recently, and this conversation isn't meant to focus on them, and we don't have any specific knowledge about those cases, but our thoughts are with them. We can begin by asking you, John, do you think there's been an increase in prevalence, or do you think that maybe media is more aware of sudden deaths that are occurring in young people in sport? Yeah, good question. I don't think there's an increase in the incidence of sudden cardiac death. I think it is more widely publicized and um, we're becoming more aware of so many of the tragic cases that have occurred, both at the youth level, um, collegiate level, and, and international or professional level. And there have been um, some concerns that the the rate is on the rise, but but I don't really think that's the case. I think that what has occurred from a research standpoint is that the methodology used to track and ascertain the cases of sudden cardiac death has improved. Because of that, we have better numbers, giving more validity to the true magnitude of this tragic problem in, in athletes. John, let's talk about what clinicians can do to prevent sudden cardiac death. I think that, you know, recently, as you alluded to, and we, we've had several really high-profile cases, um, you know, internationally, and we've had at least four sudden cardiac deaths in uh, college football players in the U.S. just this past, you know, six to seven months. I'm not familiar in detail with any of the cases, but, but it does strike me that there are some measures that we should all be thinking about that perhaps can prevent some of these tragedies. And I think the first and foremost is is that if you're a medical professional who works with athletes and works on the sideline, or if you're a sporting organization in an administrative role, you absolutely have to assure that you have emergency planning for catastrophic uh, events on the playing field. And if you're not prepared for sudden cardiac arrest, then I think you're doing a disservice and you're not really meeting the the standard of care uh, in 2012. And so emergency planning today means that you have thought ahead of time, how are we going to respond to an athlete who has collapsed and unresponsive on the field? And and we've seen these these, uh, videotapes um, from different settings. Um, When an athlete collapses, it is a, a scary event. It is a chaotic situation. Um, I think often sudden cardiac arrest goes unrecognized, and there are some things that can misdirect our response to an athlete on the playing field. But if you have a non-traumatic collapse of an athlete who is unresponsive, you have to assume that this is cardiac arrest. Some brief seizure-like activity might be common. There might be uh, agonal respirations or gasping, but that does not mean that they're not in cardiac arrest. We need to make sure that the people closest to our athletes, our coaches, our physios, our athletic trainers, our strength and conditioning coaches, our officials, are trained to recognize cardiac arrest because that is the biggest obstacle that delays potentially the life-saving resuscitation. 
these individuals need to be trained in CPR. And probably most importantly, we have to have defibrillators on the sideline. We have to have AEDs that are immediately available, especially at our competitions. And we also have to have AEDs available at our training sessions. If you're a team or a club, you need to think ahead about both how are we going to protect our athletes during competitions, how are we going to make sure that we have the right safety precautions uh, during our practices and training, when perhaps the same medical team is not immediately available. So who's going to be that person in charge? Who's responsible for the defibrillator, et cetera? Uh, these are not incredibly difficult things to plan, but it does take just a little bit of time and thought um, that we should all be doing in the, the sports medicine and sports professional world. And I think if we're not, knowing what we know about how successful defibrillators can be and how important it is to assume cardiac arrest in an unresponsive athlete, then I think we're doing a disservice and, and potentially losing lives on the playing field. That's very clear. The other side of this coin um, is can we identify the athletes um, who are at risk um, of having a tragic event on the playing field? And this is, a, in, in many ways, a more complicated issue about how we should be screening our athletes, um, with what tools, how often, um, and how good is it as, as a screening tool. I think the first thing to remember is that no matter what we use to screen our athletes, it will not be perfect, and we will not prevent all sudden death through a screening protocol, which gets me back to my first point of emphasis, which is we must have emergency planning and defibrillators available. But we also want to identify the athletes that we can identify who are at high risk of having an event. Um, and, of course, there's been the, the long-lasting uh, debate of should this just be a comprehensive history and physical or should we use an electrocardiogram uh, to perhaps look beneath the surface and identify um, athletes at risk. I think as more and more data comes out, it becomes clear to me that if the primary objective of pre-athletic cardiovascular screening is to identify athletes at risk of sudden cardiac arrest, I, I just don't think we can accomplish our primary objective if we do not use an electrocardiogram. Most of the athletes who have an event are asymptomatic until their event, and so a screening protocol that relies mostly on history questions about warning symptoms is obviously going to be quite limited in what we can identify in its sensitivity. Um, the electrocardiogram is not perfect. There are some disorders that we will still miss, um, and we have to be prepared for those on the playing field. Um, the electrocardiogram requires some uh, training and experience to interpret so we can correctly identify the normal and physiologic changes that occur in trained athletes that show up on an EKG, um, and we can distinguish those from the findings that uh, may suggest a pathologic uh, cardiovascular disease. But it is something that physicians, really of any specialty, and certainly sports medicine physicians, are, are capable of doing once they decide that they believe ECG screening um, should take place. There's been a couple cases in the United States of athletes who have um, either died in their sleep or in the early morning or really not on the playing field. And if you look back at the statistics, perhaps up to 20% of sudden cardiac death 
in young athletes occurs outside of the sports arena. And that, to me, also emphasizes that that we need to identify these individuals through some other means because some of the causes of sudden cardiac death in our athletes, such as hypertrophic cardiomyopathy and long QT syndrome, they can have events at rest or during their sleep. There is no single model of prevention that will prevent all deaths, but it is the combination of better screening with emergency planning and defibrillators that will provide our our best strategy to really uh, put a dent in sudden cardiac death and, and, and mitigate these terrible tragedies that seem to just be recurring and recurring and recurring. John, this challenge of interpreting ECGs, EKGs accurately and not having unnecessary false positives in particular, what have you been doing to try to address that? Well, we've been doing some stuff locally and also some stuff uh, um, nationally and collaborating with several international colleagues. And I think I first want to just speak to my own experience looking at an EKG in athletes. It, It was something, of course, that I was interested in. But the first place I started was to look at the existing literature, and and there are some papers out there that provide a nice background of information on what I would consider modern criteria for ECG interpretation in athletes, talking about the disease states that these changes might identify, talking about the normal findings uh, in athletes that don't require any more workup, et cetera. there is, of course, the, the landmark paper by the European Society of Cardiology in 2010 on ECG interpretation in athletes. This was followed in 2011 uh, by an, uh, an article in circulation led by cardiologists at Stanford, but including a, an international collaboration that, that provided additional um, recommendations. And then most recently, our group published um, a study using a, a simple ECG criteria tool that um, evaluated how well physicians of, of different specialties can interpret an ECG uh, both before and after use of this sort of two-page criteria tool. And that article was published, of course, in, in BGSM um, just this uh, past April in 2012. Uh, the, the criteria in all three of these articles is, is 95% similar with some minor differences. And if, if, if listeners want a place to begin to understand how to interpret an ECG, I'd say look at these articles because it really will start to give you a flavor of how, how to do this. The next step is to consider how you're going to screen in your own setting, and you may want to speak to your cardiovascular or cardiology consultant because that becomes an important part of the equation when you first start, you probably want a cardiologist who's going to help you overread the ECGs, but you want to be looking at them with the same criteria in mind, and you want to understand um, the disease states that you're looking for and for the abnormalities that show up on the ECG, what will be the next steps um, in that evaluation. So having your cardiology consultant understand your objective when you're screening and willing to help, and, and that collaboration between sports medicine and cardiology, I, I think, is is very valuable. Um, now in, in, in Seattle, we have been screening uh, at different levels. We have a, a large youth heart screening program through the Nick of Time Foundation. 
where we've screened probably uh, 4,000 high school students and student athletes over the last two years. Um, of course, we screen at the University of Washington our college athletes, and, and for myself personally, I look at American football players through the Seattle Seahawks, and it's given me a, a perspective on the screenings that we do and what we find. I am convinced, based on our youth heart screening model, that physicians really of any training can can learn to do this very well. I sit with medical students, residents, fellows, sports medicine physicians with a background in pediatrics or family medicine, um, as well as our cardiologists, and it's amazing to see how much they learn in just one morning of looking at ECGs, but looking at it with the criteria in front of them on how to distinguish normal from abnormal in the athletic setting. An ECG is a two-dimensional tracing. I mean, there are obviously morphologic patterns we need to identify, but most people have already learned how to look at an ECG. It's just understanding what criteria to apply to that. Personally, I find ECG interpretation somewhat more straightforward than, let's say, three-dimensional images from musculoskeletal ultrasound and, and MR arthrograms and things like that. But those are tools that we all make effort to learn and um, utilize in our practice. In our youth heart screening model, we've compared the history and physical questions from the PPE fourth edition monograph to um, ECG and our ability to detect conditions at risk for sudden cardiac arrest. And what's amazing to me is that the PPE monograph, which I endorse and I uh, had an opportunity to contribute to as, as a co-author, has been around now for four editions, probably upwards towards 15 or more years, and the American Heart Association recommendations for their history questions have been around for almost two decades. And to date, we have really no study <laughs> to that has looked at, are these the right questions? How good are they? Do we understand either their sensitivity or their specificity in different populations? Um, what we found in, in the high school setting is that these questions we ask in this comprehensive history may be too broad. They may be asking things that most adolescents are experiencing, for instance, chest pain and pressure in their chest and do they feel fatigued um, in exercise and short of breath, et cetera. And, and we found that about 30% of our high school student-athletes have checked one of the boxes and almost all of them are false positives. And so uh, a specificity that is about 70% or a false positive rate about 30% would not be endorsed as an acceptable screening tool, no, no matter what you're looking for. Um, our physical exam has also produced a false positive rate of about 9%. Yet when we look at our EKG, the false positive rate is only is about 4 or 5%. The sensitivity of these different measures in our high school population is also interesting where we've had a 100% sensitivity of the conditions we've detected by ECG, um, whereas the sensitivity for the history and physical has, has really been quite quite limited, 50% and less. This becomes important as we get to our older populations, and, and in the professional athletic population, there is a true risk of non-disclosure and in my four years working with professional athletes, it's hard for me to remember any athlete 
who has checked any of the boxes about cardiovascular symptoms. And maybe they don't have any symptoms, or maybe there are other factors at play that, that make it less likely for them to disclose symptoms. And so in that setting, we have to do something else because the, the history is really unreliable. I get concerned about that same issue in the college setting. Um, is there a risk of non-disclosure? How good is it? It gets back to if you believe the primary objective of screening is to identify athletes at risk, I, I just don't think we can accomplish it with a history and physical. Um, this has led to some greater efforts to, to train. I think there is a, an infrastructure uh, deficit within the United States for sure and probably many other countries where we just don't have physicians who are capable and competent in ECG interpretation in athletes. It's not part of our medical school education. It's certainly not part of residency. It's rarely part of our sports medicine fellowships. And within the cardiology community, it's probably the rare program that has any amount of formal education in these um, criteria that would uh, help distinguish normal from abnormal in trained athletes. And so what we um, embarked on was really a, a wonderful international collaboration um, led by the American Medical Society for Sports Medicine, working with the sports cardiology section of the European Society of Cardiology, PACES, which is our pediatric electrophysiology group, um, FIFA, uh, BGSM, and several other U.S. and international cardiologists. And in uh, February, we were able to bring, in my mind, some of just the world experts in ECG interpretation athletes from sports cardiology around the world uh, to Seattle, where we discussed in great detail um, what we think are the right criteria that can help with this issue of ECG interpretation. And our challenge is to keep the criteria simple enough to learn while maintaining its sensitivity, but being mindful not to throw so many criteria in there that we lose the specificity, that the false positive rate just rises too much. And so we had lots of discussions on, on what this is. We, we tried to calculate positive predictive values, et cetera, and come up with a criteria system that makes sense. And, and ultimately, um, this criteria, which I think will probably be recognized as the Seattle criteria for the, for the city in which it, it was developed, will lead to an online uh, training program where any physician from around the world can access this training module for free. The module will probably be about three or four hours in duration. It will have uh, distinct sections of the module that, that begin with a pretest, talk about normal findings in athletes. It will discuss the electrocardiogram changes in cardiomyopathy, electrocardiogram uh, changes in ion channel disorders and other electrical diseases of the heart. It will present an updated and, and, and modern ECG criteria tool for physicians to download and use. Uh, and importantly, it will discuss what are the appropriate secondary evaluations for abnormalities you see on the ECG so the sports physician has an idea of what comes next and can collaborate with their cardiologist to guide the right um, additional testing when needed. And um, I'm really excited about um, this module. I, I think it has so much potential to create an initial or at least a common foundation on how we look at ECG interpretation in athletes to fill a void where our, our usual routes of medical education are not addressing this 
and, and sports uh, physicians from around the world with an interest in ECG interpretation can, can do this module. I think this is a skill that any sports physician needs to, to, to understand and needs to be competent in. Whether that physician chooses to screen uh, with ECG can be, their, can be their decision. But undoubtedly there are times when they get an EKG in an athlete um, for various reasons, and I, I think it is a skill that that's, is their responsibility to learn. The, the timeline of this uh, training module that will ultimately be housed on BMJ Learning and, and promoted through BJSM and FIFA and all of the other uh, societies and partners um, that have contributed to it is hopefully to, to launch in uh, the winter of, of 2012. And uh, I, I think it will make a tremendous splash, and uh, I'm very excited about um, what that will do for our athletic and, and sports medicine community. John, thanks so much. You've absolutely nailed all those points. Um, why don't you finish by telling us um, you are president of AMSSM this year, so uh, <coughs> your highlights for AMSSM for the year? Sure, sure. We just returned from, from Atlanta, um, where we had the 21st annual meeting for the AMSSM, and it, it was just an incredible meeting. And one of the things we emphasized was uh, international participation, and we were honored to have um, yourself and, and several other international colleagues come and speak, uh, Roald Barr, Martin Schwellness, uh, John Patricius uh, from South Africa. It, it was amazing to have them there at our, our conference, I think the scientific content could not have been higher at, at our meeting. Um, our, our next meeting is uh, April of, of 2013 in San Diego, and I think it will also be a fantastic meeting and, and would invite, of course, our U.S., but also our international sports medicine physicians to, to think about making this a, a, a conference that um, they would attend, the educational value, the the collegiality of our uh, society, I think, really comes through, and it's just a, just a fun event. The, the year ahead for AMSSM is exciting. I think we have several big projects. Obviously, the, the EKG uh, training module is one of them. But I think um, AMSSM is in a position now um, to both lead and partner with other sports organizations to make an impact. Uh, and we're looking for opportunities that protect the health and safety of athletes, and we're looking for um, opportunities that really advance our scientific understanding of the discipline in which we work. And so uh, I think the year ahead is is going to be wonderful. Um, there's certainly lots to do. We have a giant uh, emphasis on um, contributing to research and also, of course, to education of, of physicians, which is really the, the foundation of AMSSM. So I, I think the year ahead is going to be very exciting. And congratulations. I know you have over 2,000 members of AMSSM now, and uh, there were over 1,200 at the conference. It was a tremendous atmosphere there. And BJSM has described AMSSM as the heart of primary care sports medicine, and uh, your organisation deserves a lot of credit. John, if we're going to summarise on the heart situation, sudden cardiac death, very briefly, what have been the big changes over the last 12 months? What's the take-home message for our our busy clinician. 
Sure. I think the first take-home message is we've focused so much on screening, we can't forget the secondary prevention, which is emergency planning and AEDs. And that is the first thing we need to clean up. You have to make sure that you're prepared to respond to a collapsed athlete. You have to make sure that you have an AED closely available, and you have to make sure that you've thought ahead about who are your responders and are they trained and what is the scenario. We have to ensure the safety of our athletes when they are uh, competing on the playing field. And so the first thing is almost going backwards, that just we got to clean up our backyard a little bit and make sure that we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's in the way that we know we can. The second point is, is can we screen better and identify those at risk? I think the crux of the, of the issue is understanding ECG interpretation in athletes. There are uh, papers being written on this. There are modules coming out in the future that will help physicians train. And, and we have to recognize the limits of what, of what we've been trying to do by history and physical and understand that by adding ECG, it's a protocol um, that is feasible, that can have a low false positive rate, and that will have a better sensitivity to identify those at risk. And I, I think that's the direction we need to be moving. Thanks so much, John. You've been listening to John Dresner, who's at the University of Washington. He's a professor in the Department of Family Practice. He's a primary care sports medicine physician and expert in sports cardiology. You can follow over 50 podcasts on the BJSM site by looking by experts' names. And you can have regular updates through Twitter, where we are at BJSM underscore BMJ. Our blog will update you on sports medicine events almost daily. And, of course, BJSM publishes 16 issues a year. Thanks for listening to this BJSM podcast, and we look forward to sharing other guests in sport and exercise medicine with you. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.